following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. So good to be here today. You know, on social media sometimes, since Jill's introduced the subject, you know there's those little stupid surveys come up and you have to put in some kind of data about yourself to determine what kind of actor you are. You know, who you might be in Hollywood. And of course, I never end up being Clint Eastwood, Arnold Schwarzenegger, or Jean-Claude Van Damme, or Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I end up being Rowan Atkins or Gollum <laughs> from Lord of the Rings. And part of the reason for that, ladies and gentlemen, is my diminutive physical strength and presence. I stand here today unashamed, maybe a little, at being not quite six feet tall and weighing a mere 70 kgs when I'm wet. That's it. My arms are not particularly massive. You could say I have guns, but they would be more like spud guns for those people who remember them from decades ago. Those little pistols you get and you push them into a potato and you've got a little bit of spud and then you'd fire them at somebody. That's really the kind of level we're talking about when we talk about my arms. And my wife knows this, so she gets me to do seldom to do hard, taxing physical tasks around the house. But this year something happened. As she was about to prepare the evening meal, she said, Adam, honey, I want you to get out of the freezer. And immediately I started to get concerned. Hypothermia, frostbite. Did I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I suffer from all kinds of incredible phobias. One is opening the freezer and me dying slowly as, I, as all warmth seeps out of my body. And she said, I want you to go to the freezer and bear this in mind, it's a fridge freezer. So the freezer is down low. I'm going to have to actually use glutes and quads and all kinds of things I've never heard of. And I'm going to have to bend down and pick it up. I want you to pick up a bag of peas. I open the freezer. I look inside. And there, my fear of all fears, written on the side of this frozen bag of peas, are these, this number and these letters. One K-G. One kg, my friends, my personal best, my PB for taking frozen goods out of the freezer is a 500 gram bag of diced capsicums. I do what all great athletes do. How do I know this? Because I've seen them do it on television. I do this with my neck a little bit, rotate it. I stretch out my muscles a bit, up and down, up and down. I do this, ladies and gentlemen. I've seen this many times. Hypervent, I don't know if that helps at all, but it certainly was fun to do. And then I reached down there and I grabbed a hold of the peas at this moment, wanting to confirm to my wife that I was a beta male. <laughs> I grabbed the peas and guess what? They are cold. <laughs> and I may have overstretched myself. Why did I commit myself to such an impossible task? It's one of the 10 tasks of Hercules. I'm being asked to sustain the world and the universe. I grab the peas, they are cold. Frostbite is already starting to set and I can feel it on my fingertips, turning black before my very imaginative eyes. And as I pull it up, I suddenly start to shake. 
And I realise what those CrossFit people are talking about when they say you need a strong core. Because <laughs> down here, was, there's a quivering taking place. And as I bring it up though, I go, come on, one kg, one kg. And then, ladies and gentlemen, the size of a pea itself. I see something start to take place on my arm, a popping, a rising. It's the Hulk embodiment right there, incarnated in the kitchen. And I grab those peas and I move them over in one swift movement and drop them on the bench. I'm all a quiver and shaking. Sometimes when you lift up heavy weights, the blood rushes from your brain. I was like that, but determined to stand my ground. I reached over to the bench, embraced myself, still shaking. I did it. I'm victorious. It's a gold medal. It's the Olympics of weightlifting in our kitchen. And then I am rushed to the bathroom. There in the bath, I'd already pre-planned this in case she asked me one day. Every day I filled the bath with ice. I've seen athletes do this all the time. All blacks do it. Cantabrians do it. I plunge myself into this ice water bath. It's essential, ladies and gentlemen, for any bruising or damage that might have taken place to my biceps. I lie there in the freezing cold, but with a warm glow of success. That evening, a sports physio works on my arm. I take a couple of Voltaren. I'm ready to face a new day. <laughs> you say, Adam, what have you just done? I've confirmed to you the absolute patheticness of my physical strength and dimensions. And you might be thinking to yourself, Adam, you are less than an insect, a reptile, a fish, a bird. On the contrary, I exceed them all. I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that the person standing before you, not even six foot tall and 70 kgs in weight, there's a fundamental difference between even a weakling like me and an insect and a bird and a fish and a reptile or any other mammal amongst mammals. And it is this, that I and you we make things, and we make things to make other things to make other things. And we call that ability that you and I have technology. You see, ladies and gentlemen, there are some simple primates and some birds that are able to use their very poor limited intellect to take a rock and smash open a nut and take it, a seed from it to feed themselves. But it's only human beings like myself and yourself gathered here today and all our frailties and limitations and weaknesses that built the Eiffel Tower, the Great Wall of China, St. Paul's Cathedral. Do you realize that human beings have invented technology in which we can communicate over vast distances? Today I'm using a form of that with a microphone and amplifiers and speakers. No other animals ever come up with something like that. The ability to communicate between houses, across cities, between nations and countries, over great vast expanses of water, over between continents. Do you know that we are in communication right at this very moment with astronauts in the International Space Station in orbit around the Earth. We are in communication with devices that this, at this very moment are hurtling their way through the solar system out towards the outer reaches of what we know as known space. 
Human beings are the only ones who have done this. We can take vast amounts of information, the entire collection of everything in the universities of the world, and we can put them on a device smaller than your thumb. We can delve into the molecular world, the very substance of nature, and yet look out beyond the stars and measure the distance between galaxies. And how do we do all of this? We do it all through the wonders of technology. Today, we're going to look at a series I call Techno God. So how's our PowerPoint going? We're all ready to go, Techno God. It's a three-part series in which we're going to explore the intersection relationship between our faith as Christians and technology, something you may never have thought of before. But in fact, if you just consider how you started your day and how you got here and the amount of technology that was acquired to do all of that is of voluminous proportions. It would be in the hundreds, if not thousands, of pieces of technology that made all of that possible. And yet we seldom think about it when we come to consider faith. Today I want to talk to you as an introduction to all of this about the fact that technology was not Bill Gates' idea. It was not Thomas Edison's idea. It was not Isaac Watts' idea. It was not um, the idea of even Elon Musk, although he would like to claim credit for just about everything on planet Earth. It was, in fact, God's idea. This is the main truth we're going to explore over the time we have this morning. It was God's idea. And that technology has an important part to play in God's plan for us as believers and for general humanity. For us as believers and in general humanity. This, of course, brings us to an important point and juncture in this presentation. What do I mean by the term technology? Each of us will have different ideas as to what I'm talking about, but we're going to look at a definition. Technology can be defined as methods, systems, and devices that change our environment. Commonly, technology refers to the tools that we use in our interaction with people and the material world. You'll notice in here that the word tool appears. Technology and tools are very synonymous. In our thesaurus today, we're going to be able to interchange them. Technology is tools, and tools are technology. And for most conversations, that kind of definition works, and it certainly works for us today. The other thing to note is that we commonly think about technology. We think about a bulldozer, a typewriter, a telescope, or we think about a laser, a laser surgical device, or, or any number of things. But technology is also a method. It's in our first sentence. It's a system. This means that mathematics something that can sometimes just exist within the confines of a human being's mind and not be represented in a physical object, is a tool. Of course it is. The ability to calculate, to measure, to weigh, and all other kinds of abstractions can be quantified by the use of numbers. It is therefore a technology. 
science, the Baconian method or scientific method of hypothesis and experimentation. That is a system or a method. It is a technology that we use to interact with what? other human beings, and with our environment. So technology covers a broad range of different things. Well, how do we know then, Adam, that how can you support the claim that you've made that technology is God's idea? In the Bible, there are two ways we can do that. The first is implicitly, and the second is explicitly. Implicitly and explicitly for those of you who are taking notes. The first of these can be deduced from what theologians call the overarching narrative for humanity and the world. The overarching narrative for humanity and the world. We might call this the meta-narrative, the grand story. Now, as Christians, when we turn up to church on Sunday... More commonly, when we talk about the grand narrative, we do it in terms of soteriology, which is just a fancy pants word talking about salvation. In other words, the whole story of the Bible or God's interaction with humanity is about the creation of man, the fall of man, and then the son of man, and then the ultimate redemption of man and his creation at the end times. That is the principal grand narrative or meta-narrative that you and I get every Sunday. We call it, if you're old school and you know your theology and church attendance from the 70s, we call it sometimes the scarlet thread. The scarlet thread that runs through the entire Bible is a kind of grand narrative. But it's not the only big narrative to be found in the Bible. There is another story, and it's the story you can see on the slide up here. It is a story of man or humanity's movement from a garden to a city, a garden to a city. If you think about it in the Bible, where does man start off? Where do Adam and Eve find themselves? We find in this narrative in Genesis that Adam and Eve are walking in a natural, a divinely prepared natural wilderness a divinely prepared natural wilderness, a garden. But by the time we get to Revelation 21, we find that God's people are now in a different place, that they are in a divinely prepared, gold-paved, glorious city. So wondrous is the city that the Bible tells us that it has no need of sun or moon or stars to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminates the city. And who is the light of the city? The next part of the verse says, the Lamb of God is its light. In other words, we are advancing from a rural, muddy, agrarian background in Genesis to a gold-paved, glorious finale in a city. It still has a garden, by the way, for those of you gardeners out there who'd be worried about that, and a river and a whole lot of other great things going on. But essentially, we're being told it's a new city that we are heading towards. Now, cities, by dint of implication and definition, are only sustained and advance with technology. It is not possible to have a city without technology. Firstly, you have to be able to feed everybody, which requires advances in agriculture, technological advances in agriculture. You also need to provide infrastructure, roads, bridges, electricity. 
All of that requires technology. And if you want to start building houses that are more than just hovels and they go up into skyscrapers in a modern city, all kinds of other advances are needed. In other words, in this grand narrative of Garden to City, there's this implied advancement of technology. Technology is implied in God's overarching Genesis to Revelation Garden to City narrative. The second thing is our explicit, explicit use of technology is required to fulfill another part of this grand narrative. What is the kind of instructions we have in the Bible? The Bible tells us that our purpose as human beings, initially in Genesis 1.26, is what we might say is to have babies, grow food, and govern the animals and the whole earth. That's what Genesis 1.26 says, that you and I should have babies, we should grow food, and we should govern the animals, and we should govern the earth. Theologians call this the dominion mandate. That's exactly what you can see up here, the dominion mandate. This is nicely illustrated in Genesis 2.15, when God takes man and puts him in the Garden of Eden and gives him these specific instructions. If there's any verse you should write down this morning, it's Genesis 2.15, because this is our pivotal verse. He tells Adam that he is to tend and keep this garden, and by extension, the entire world. Another way to translate this is that humans are to cultivate and guard the garden. Thus, Adam and Eve were given a very specific task, this dominion mandate, that they were to be gardeners and guardians of the earth. Gardeners and guardians of the earth. Now, take a note here. It's to be a precious, careful, and precise balance between these two. But because of the fall, you and I recognize, even as New Zealanders, down here in the bottom of the South Pacific and so-called idyllic God zone, that we are very good at exploiting the garden, the land of Aotearoa, New Zealand, but we fail on many occasions in guarding it, protecting it, as God has commanded us to do. There are two parts to this. An example of this would be, say, our dairy industry. New Zealand, with Fonterra and a number of companies, produces a lot of dairy produce. We produce, of course, uh, milk powders and milk and cheese and butter. And we're very good at this. We're very good at taking the land, putting cows on it, and we're world leaders at doing this. In fact, in fulfilling God's mandate for us to cultivate the garden in this way, we exceed many other nations around the world. The problem comes in when we do not guard or protect the garden in which those cows are in. In other words, we allow them to walk unguarded through waterways, polluting them runoff into rivers and into the lakes can destroy them and kill them. And then we have failed to guard, keep, care, and protect the garden. And unfortunately, this is a state we find ourselves globally in terms of things like plastics. We've been very good at exploiting petrochemicals, but we have not been so good in protecting the environment and ourselves as human beings from the results of all of this. And this is partly, of course, or mostly due to the fall and the fact that people want to exploit with greed 
with little respect for God's injunction that we should be guarding it. But I want to get back to this idea of garden to city narrative and cultivating and guarding through the dominion mandate because this involves something very important. It involves what we call a reordering of the material world. That is the more materials that God has provided for us. Everything on earth, if we are to cultivate it and to guard it, requires a reordering of it. Even in the Garden of Eden, there may have been an apple tree here, an apple tree here, an apple tree another 100 meters away. If you want to more productively cultivate apples, what do you do, ladies and gentlemen? You grab those apple trees or seeds and you plant them in a row and then another row and you create an orchard and then you prune those apple trees. This produces a better crop. Can you see what's going on here? So although God had produced a garden with all of these vegetables and fruits in it, Adam was required and God had told him to, to creatively reorder it so that he would do what? He could, he could have babies, he could feed himself and others and have dominion over the natural world. I like the way Tony Reinke puts it. He puts it this way. He says that Adam's job was to take the raw materials of the earth from the wood of the trees to the rocks of the ground to the metal buried deep within the earth. And he was what? Required to create new things. Now, whenever you create something, it means a reordering. If you want to create a wooden chair, guess what you have to do? You have to cut down a tree, and then you have to reorder the part, that wood, into a form that creates the chair that you can sit down on. I'm sure you realize there's a vast difference between trying to sit on a tree and trying to sit on a chair. The difference is the reordering of the raw material. God establishes this idea that he wants Adam and Eve and you and I to reorder this natural world when he creates Adam and Eve. He creates a pattern. Think about this. When God created the cosmos, what did he do, ladies and gentlemen? Did he get a Bunsen burner and a set of chemicals? And did he put them into a, maybe a Petri dish or some kind of um, a, a, a glass bowl? He did not. You know what he did? Let there be light. And there was light. In fact, much of God's creative power came simply through a spoken word. And yet when it came to human beings, he did not speak us into existence. And in not doing so, he sets an example for us. You see, the God who created the cosmos by the mere utterance of his lips came down to earth and got his hands in the earth, in the soil, in the mud, in the dust. What does the Bible tell us in Genesis 2-7? The Bible says that God created Adam and formed him from the dust of the earth. What was he doing? Why would he do it that way? In part, he was doing it, I believe, as a means of showing us and setting a model for Adam and Eve that would follow. 
He was reorganizing the elemental world to create us. He took elements from what we commonly call the periodic table, and then he reordered them into the human form to create the very cells of our bodies, our bones, our internal organs, our epidermis, our skin, our skeletal structure. Some of us are more skeletal than we are epidermis, like myself, ladies and gentlemen, um, at 70 kgs. But I think you get this idea that God is taking all these elements. Think about it. Oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, calcium, nitrogen, um, all of these elements. You think about oxygen, hydrogen. You combine them in just the right proportions, and you know what you get? The most amazing, life-giving substance in the entire universe. Water. H2O. Do you know that 60% of your human body is just pure H2O? Do you know that over 70% of your brain is H2O? What does water do? Well, it's this life-supporting combination of hydrogen and oxygen, and it produces and facilitates chemical and metabolic reactions, such as the chemical breakdown of the foods that we eat. Well, if you think about carbon, we're often called carbon-based creatures. Carbon is really important for building uh, the building blocks of our cells. Or take nitrogen, which is vital for our DNA, the nucleic acid in our DNA. Or phosphorus and calcium, essential for the construction and the continuing maintenance and strength of our teeth and our bones. What did God do? He took these elements and he formed human beings from them. That's what he did. What's the key point in all this? He modeled the practice for Adam and Eve, of reordering the natural world to fulfill his purposes. What were they? Cultivating, garden to city, guarding the earth. Now, we don't know what the process was that God used to reconstitute all these elements, some 60 of them. Do you know there's 94 known naturally occurring elements of which the whole universe is made from? And God used about 60 of them in the construction of Adam, and therefore you and I. Wow, 60 of them. But we don't know how he did it. But it's very clear in the Bible that for us to complete the grand narrative of city to garden, the dominion mandate of cultivating and guarding the earth, it requires a reordering of the natural materials of the earth. To fulfill this narrative, the dominion mandate requires this reordering of raw materials that God gave us. And this, finally, we get to it. This is where technology comes in. Because you and I can reorder the natural earth almost infinitely better than we can with just our own physical resources. Technology makes all the difference in the world. That's how we do it. It, we do it because technology enhances. It enhances and enables our, our natural abilities. The very first technology that man deployed was given to him by God, and we find it in the book of Genesis. You know when Adam and Eve walked in the Garden of Eden, who did they walk with? Who did Adam walk with? It was with God. He communed with God, or they communed with God. How do you commune with somebody, ladies and gentlemen? Communication. If you were to ask an anthropologist, we may have an anthropologist here today. These are people who simply study 
humanity. And if you ask an anthropologist, what was the single greatest technological development in all of human history? Do you know what that anthropologist is going to say to you without any hesitation? Language. Language enables you and I to communicate and disseminate information, ideas. We can collaborate, cooperate, and achieve vast things that we could never do by ourselves. It is the fundamental technological tool that we have. And in the Bible, it agrees with the anthropologists. It's what God gave to Adam. And what does God do when he presents all the, all the animals in front of him? Who gets to name all the animals, categorize them, put them into different into different boxes. It's Adam. Adam uses language. Do you know that you can also get technology upgrades? Many of you are experiencing this now. You've probably seen the latest iPhone. Realize that you don't need the next one, but feel compelled to buy it. It's a technological upgrade in iPhones or any computer that you might have, or your car may need a technological upgrade. Um, I was going to say my wife might want a uh, husband upgrade. But that's not negotiable, ladies and gentlemen. That's not to be found in the scriptures. Sandra and I, I may have said this to you before, but Sandra and I agreed that when we got married, we would never talk about divorce. Murder, on the other hand, was something we left out of the conversation at that time because it's till death do you part. And that's always potentially an option. Um, now, this brings us, to, we, I've lost my train of thought, I've lost my train of thought by saying something that's stupid and Sandra's not here today, mercifully. And when she appears next Sunday, you will not repeat anything I have said, mercifully, please. But you know, the first technological upgrade we find appears in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve, when they had sinned, made for themselves garments, clothes. Do you know that clothes are technology? Do you think Sir Edmund Hillary climbed Mount Everest naked? Do you think that Jacques Cousteau, when he explores the depths of the ocean, when he explored the depths of the ocean, did it naked? Do you think when Neil Armstrong got out of the lunar lander, he did it naked? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, all those environments require either a wetsuit or tramping climbing boots and a great coats, or if you're in space, a space suit that's going to protect you from cosmic rays and the frigidity of space and the vacuum of space. Clothing is definitely a really important technology. So what does God do? He knows that he's going to expel them from the Garden of Eden. It's going to be much harder than the Garden of Eden. So what does he do? He provides them with what? More durable, lasting, and functional clothing. Better technology. He gives them animal skins. Of course, it's a sign that with sin comes death. And there are always consequences for sin. But if you're looking at the grand narrative, not through the lens of soteriology, but you're looking at it through the lens of technology, you realize this is actually a, God's been very gracious to Adam and Eve. He's providing them with animal skins so that they might more easily survive. Technology is um, like language and clothing, makes us better at fulfilling the garden to city narrative and the cultivating and guarding. This is because it upholds and enhances our bodies dramatically. Technology makes us stronger. We can see further. We can hear better. We can go faster. We can, um, we can with a microscope, we, we, it enhances our vision to see microbes. With a telescope, we can not just see stars, but we can see galaxies, all because of technology. Farming is a good example of this. It's a, uh, essential for a movement from an agrarian or rural farming society for the establishment of large cities. 
Farming with our hands alone would be incredibly difficult. We could probably cultivate a very small plot of land. It's hard for us to imagine because we're so surrounded by technology, but imagine all technology was stripped away from you and the only thing you had were your hands to cultivate a plot of land. How much land do you think you could cultivate? Perhaps enough for yourself. Probably you'd have to become like a hunter-gatherer, shifting around to where there were sources of food, totally itinerant with no abiding place of abode. But what if we added in one simple piece of technology that would allow you and I to reorder the materials of the natural world to cultivate it better? I have an example of this right here today, ladies and gentlemen. It only contains essentially two parts to it. It has a handle. This one's got a nice bit of a grip on the end here. And then it has what we might call a steel blade. This is technically a spade, though you might call it a shovel. With this device now, I can prepare more land. I can cultivate more land. I can plant more land. And I can irrigate more land because I can dig channels for water to flow through, even over considerable distances through this one simple piece of technology, the shovel. I want you to think about the strongest man on earth, since we've considered the weakest man at the beginning of our sermon. The strongest man you can see here is called, his surname is Beer Eshin, and he's an Icelandic behemoth, a Viking. Beer Eshin, unlike myself, is 2.06 meters tall. That means he is six foot nine. He weighs, unlike my 70 kgs, 190 kgs. And unlike my pathetic attempts to lift up a one kg bag of frozen peas, my PB, even up until this time, he has been able to deadlift 472 kgs. Akarumba. 472 kgs. That's more than twice his own weight in a deadlift. And that's over six, that's six of me. And incredibly, and this is something I can visualize and imagine quite easily, 472 bags of frozen Wattie's peas. You think about that, 472 bags of those peas. And he's lifting them all up by himself, unaided. Now take this Viking and take this skinny boy from Glenfield out onto the golf course behind us. We have the same style or brand of boots on. We have the same stubby shorts on. We have the same singlet, except mine has a silver fern on it. His has a Viking ax. And we are set the same task, and it is to dig a two by two by two meter deep hole on the putting green on the golf course. But there is one difference between Beerson and me, is Beerson can only use his hands. But I've got this bad boy, a $20 shovel or spade from Bunnings. I know who I'm putting money on, ladies and gentlemen. I'm putting it on the skinny 70 kg white boy from Glenfield. 
I'm going to take that Viking down. You know it. You take the strongest man and you ask him to dig a two-by-two-by-two-meter two two hole in the ground with his bare hands through that soft earth, and then he hits the clay that's under there, and I take my whole weight, and it's not great, and I plant my feet on this, and I jump on this, and I start extracting chunk after chunk of native earth. I'm going to win, boys and girls. It's a foregone conclusion. And it was a $20 piece of technology. Wow. And then think about the other advantages in agriculture. You see, this type of device was then supplanted by a wooden plow. Then the harnessing and the domestication of animals such as the ox. And then someone invented the internal combustion engine that powered a tractor with a metal plow. And because of all these technological advances, more of the world is cultivated in line with God's mandate than ever before. And more people than ever before live in cities. In the year 1500, less than 5% of the world's population lived in cities. Today, in 2019, 2019, 55% of the world's population live in cities, and by 2050, it'll be over 60%. Not necessarily in ideal circumstances, of course, but it's all because of technological advances that have made that possible. Well, where does this all leave us as we conclude this morning? We've discovered in our initial survey of this topic, and we've made an important fundamental discovery. Technology and tools are implicitly and explicitly part of God's plan for humanity and his chosen people. The Garden City to Narrative and the Dominion Mandate of cultivating and guarding the earth involves the reordering of the natural material world. And we do this best through the use of technology. Next week, we're going to continue this journey, and we're going to ask ourselves an important but initially perplexing question that you might want to consider over this week. Is technology neutral? And if not, what might be the implications to our faith? Seems an obscure question, but it's where we're going to find ourselves in seven days' time. Lord, we thank you for technology. We thank you for the many benefits that are derived from it. In fact, Lord, many of us wouldn't even be alive today if it wasn't due to medical advances, technological devices that have sustained us and intervened when we might otherwise have lost our lives. You are a good and gracious God. We thank you for making us part of your divine plan. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.